Section 11, Strategy for the 90s, Windows. Windows, one evolving architecture with hardware freedom for all users and freedom to choose among the largest set of applications. Bill G. Email. With our Bill G. review completed, we needed to regroup. We knew what we did wrong technically, but we lacked a strategy to build a product that involved target customers and product goals. We were a technology team in search of a problem. Microsoft's strategy was coming into focus, and Jeff set our small team up to be the glue amplifying our efforts. We needed to ship. Shipping is everything. The traditional C compiler team was working on C++ after the death march release of C6. They were making progress on what was an enormous task. The team had about two dozen brilliant compiler and code generation expert developers and added Martin O'Reardon, email Martin O, who pioneered the implementation of many of the esoteric features of C++ in the Glockenspiel compiler, the one we had been using for ET++ and AFX. The team was making significant progress at the core compiler technology and immersed itself in the language standardization process, ensuring Microsoft had a front row seat for C++. Windows 3.0 shipped and exceeded any and all expectations. Pre-installed sales in the first few months shot up more than 1 million copies. By the time our BLG review happened, Windows 3.0 sold twice that or more. Work was well underway for the successor, Windows 3.1, which would make substantial progress in using the latest Intel processors, significantly improving networking and file sharing, and adding new user interface APIs that would make building Windows programs easier. Its success meant that our strategy was handed to us. With all the conflicting goals and external relationships, knowing what to do or having a feeling about what made sense from a technology perspective is not the makings of a strategy. Strategic shifts, like the one Vilji orchestrated with the transition to GUI in the first place, take clear, top-down direction. We had anything but that, still. Windows morphed into Microsoft's main strategy from a side project. While the apps team was already heavily invested in Macintosh, when it came to Microsoft's own operating systems, we were inconsistently spread across MS-DOS, Windows, and OS2. Often, in times of, strate times of strategic turmoil or doubt, a few simple observations on the state of the world expressed plainly can lead to an effective strategy, removing ambiguity and doubt. Our team knew we needed something to compete with Next Step, and we knew we were going to use C++, but we had two big problems. First, AFX was given the mission to develop tools for all of the platforms apps might build for, which included Windows, which at the time would always mean some of the older versions and the newest ones, Macintosh, where the money came from, and OS2, because that was the company strategy still. Even MS-DOS, where most of the customers still existed. Second, we had been strategically focused on professional developers, which might not sound like much, but implied many things about the product, such as using character-based tools instead of GUI tools and not worrying about how easy it was to write programs. The most important apps of the new era were being written by professionals, not hobbyists, but now Borland was attracting professionals. We were hamstrung by the perceived need to cater to professional developers who were focused on the complex Microsoft platform strategy of MS-DOS, Windows, and OS2. How could we pick one operating system without breaking the strategy? Who were we, the small group in apps, to make such a decision? The answer was right in front of our faces. Windows 3.0 sales surpassed Macintosh sales. In the first entire year, Windows 3.0 sold about 4 million units, almost twice the number of Macintosh computers sold, and over twice the number of all Windows units sold previously since 1985. Windows sales were doubling in months, 
while Macintosh was growing sporadically, but at about 30% per year. The rest of Mike Mapp's apps organization turned to focus boldly and clearly on Windows and Macintosh at the expense of MS-DOS and OS2, which led to only one conclusion, focus our efforts on Windows. Borland was already doing that. Many application vendors were starting to do that, except for the biggest ones. The situation for programmers was rapidly becoming one where if someone was building a new app, then it would be on Windows. For existing companies, the question was not if the focus would shift almost exclusively to Windows, but when. Even Macintosh started to be questioned in some commercial circles, simply because of the growth rates and urgency around Windows. The online version includes an InfoWorld magazine cover, Advanced Windows May Resolve OS2 Dilemma highlighting the conflict in the trade press between OS2 and Windows. This change happened in the span of months and was as dramatic for us as it was for everyone, including our friends and coworkers in systems. In systems, they were still trying to get OS2 to work and executives were still navigating the relationship with IBM. That relationship had cooled substantially in public with increasingly political statements being made about who would support what and when. Rather than clarifying a partnership, these began to clarify a reality. Windows was the breakout. Everything else was going to be left behind. This was a classic case of an internal situation making something seem bold, but from the competitive marketplace, the choice was obvious. Windows. The summer of 1991 would prove to be a pivotal time for Microsoft and the industry. In hindsight, this was most decidedly a moment, along with a memo to prove it and decisions around that. Rarely in corporate evolution do incredible successes so easily connect to specific dates and choices, but Microsoft's early years seem to be marked by several Bill G moments. Microsoft, just a decade earlier, closed the deal with IBM, and the single decision to codify Microsoft's right to license MS-DOS to other PC makers was documented in a succinct business plan memo. And just a few years after that, Microsoft stopped building new applications for MS-DOS to focus on GUI at an offsite led by Bill. It is amazing that the most early and key strategic choices the company made could be connected to specific events and moments in time. In the spring of 1991, Bill G. set aside a week, as he was going to do regularly, to get away and update himself on the latest technical developments, and he called this Think Week. As I would learn personally in just a few short years, most of the time was spent deep in reading, but he would also commit to writing. This particular week, deep in the success of Windows 3.0 and ongoing development of Windows 3.1, along with the ongoing frustrations of OS2 development, he took a step back to consider and decide Microsoft's big platform back bet. As I would come to learn, this was a prototypical Bill G memo. It was a series of seemingly unrelated points, usually detailed in a bulleted list, each with a block of strongly imperative and candid text. It was also, for lack of a better word, a bit paranoid especially in hindsight when one considers all the issues. Yet when reading the memo in the context of the moment, it is clear that while these might be a bit of a laundry list of everything he was worried about, it was just as much a list of all the things that must go right for a strategy to be successful. Bill knew more than anyone just how fragile the world of software can be to companies. While I'm forward referencing a bit, he was fond of saying that the company's most difficult times are seated when things appear to be going perfectly well. The list of just PC software companies in decline or that vanished was already long. Bill detailed this strategy in the widely read email he originally sent only to executives, but quickly raced around the company. 
This was the first Bill G. memo that I saw, and in hindsight showed the deep thought that Bill put into focusing the company on Windows in a time of change. The May 16, 1991 mail also made it into the San Jose Mercury News and Wall Street Journal, and even then, even into some trials and tribulations with regulators. I was too naive and too much of a true blue believer to even consider the negatives or theories in the press on what was significant. I took the memo at face value. The memo was abundantly clear, quoting, in the same way that DEC's strategy for the 80s was VAX, one architecture, one operating system, our strategy for the 90s is Windows, one evolving architecture, a couple of implementations. Everything we do should focus on making Windows more successful. A good reader note is that the VAX strategy ultimately proved to be both brilliant and the very end of digital equipment. So it's interesting to think about that. The press mostly focused on the sections of the memo expressing concerns about competitors. The Wall Street Journal headline was Microsoft Founder Gates in Memo Warns of Attack and Defeat by Rivals and discussed the widening rift with IBM, even saying Microsoft, quote, lashed out at IBM. The memo's ever-present competitive tone using warlike terminology such as attack and thinking through competitive battle scenarios were too exciting to be omitted from the coverage. Quoting, the simplest summary is to repeat our strategy in its simplest form, Windows, one evolving architecture, a couple of implementations, and an immense number of great applications for Microsoft and others. Bill Gates, May 16, 1991. In fact, the memo codified what the market had seemingly decided. The winner was Windows. Bill was clarifying, crystallizing, and emphasizing that point with specific calls to action. He made sure everyone knew OS2 was no longer a priority and that we now had a strategy that was entirely Windows. In concluding, he restated this as, the simplest summary is to repeat our strategy in its simplest form, Windows, one evolving architecture, a couple of implementations, and an immense number of great applications from Microsoft and others. For most of us in apps, the part of that seemed more newsworthy was a clear mention of what until then was simply known as advanced Windows, or usually OS2 3.0, was now a full bet on Windows, and that Microsoft was no longer committed to making the imminent release of OS2 2.0 a priority. The memo acknowledged that the relationship with IBM would get to be difficult, but optimistically noted that Microsoft would come out bigger and stronger company, no longer successful simply because of support from IBM. Quoting, the a couple of implementations is a somewhat humorous reference to the fact that our NT-based versions and our non-NT versions have a different code in a number of areas that allow for us to have both the advanced features we want and be fairly small on the Intel architecture. Eventually, we will get back to one implementation, but it will take four years before we use NT for everything. I would not use this simple summary for outside consumption. There, it would be more like Windows, one evolving architecture with hardware freedom for all users and freedom to choose amongst the largest set of applications. Again, Bill G, 1991. In hindsight, there's a fun section in the memo where Bo points out the reality that Microsoft currently has a couple of implementations of Windows technologies, and it would take four years before we use NT for everything. It would almost be 10 years in reality and eight or so releases of the two main code bases to get to one operating system code base, Windows XP. The bet on Windows, the bet on what was now becoming known as simply NT internally, was now clear. While NT was an abbreviation for new technology, it was common knowledge that we were not to confirm that brief history and to say it was just two letters, something about lawyers and trademarks was the hallway talk. 
Literally, overnight, the efforts around OS2 and MS-DOS fell from almost everyone's plates, and certainly all new projects reset their focus to be Windows. Where did that leave our AFX effort and competing with Next? The memo also pointed out that the most important differentiator between operating systems and most important criteria for winning in the market would be hardware freedom for all users and freedom to choose among the largest set of apps. It was our job in AFX to build the tools to enable the largest set of apps to exist. Our challenge was that the C++ product team, managed in a different group, reporting to Mike, did not have it so easy. Unlike AFX, which had no existing code or commitments, the C++ product group was committed to delivering the C++ compiler, which was becoming essential for the creation of NT and to deliver C++ for Windows 3.1 and later. That support was for professional tools, professional in the sense that they were character-based command line tools. Oh, and Windows NT already had a target ship date towards the end of the year. That was an experienced team that was making progress. There was a real urgency to have C++ tools for the upcoming developer preview release of NT. Microsoft was already planning a big conference for developers, and part of the conference would be a preview of Windows NT and the professional tools required to build applications. There was a lot going on, and while the strategic shift was clarifying, the next level of detail when it comes to figuring out the ordering and priorities of projects still needed to be worked out. That's just very common in big changes. At the same time, there was no way for us to build, from scratch, an entire suite of GUI tools competitive with Next Step in the months remaining in 1991. Jeff was a master at schedules and understanding where groups really stood relative to their optimistic plans. He lived through 10 years of app schedules and death marches. Plus, the C6 team just shipped after their own death march and needed a significant update, C6.0a, to address concerns that the initial product was buggy. A key insight Jeff brought was directly connected to his experience working with Apple and Steve Jobs, most recently reflected in Chris Peters' Shipping Software Tech Talk. The idea that being grand architecturally is a distant second to being pragmatic and shipping products. Steve Jobs famously rallied the Macintosh team with the mantra, Real Artists Ship, a play on Picasso's famous saying, Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Jeff told us to put our oopaholic problems aside and said, enough is enough, it's time for us to ship. Like all lofty goals, we needed to break the project down. There was an obvious first step to take. First, get C++ done, which was necessary since our tools were built in C++. From there, we could build the Windows GUI tools in C++ and fully bootstrap or self-host. This two-step plan also created an opportunity for our AFX team to ship something or anything with the forthcoming character-based C++ compiler. The C++ compiler coincidentally needed something as well. Borland was busy building an application framework. Microsoft had none. Borland led the way in telling a new generation of programmers how to use the latest object-oriented tools to build Windows programs on Windows. That meant Microsoft was ceding control of the actual platform it was creating to Borland. When it came to class libraries, we still needed a philosophy or a point of view that helped to guide us. All we had was a failed upaholic view. That's where my experience at Usenix came in. Returning to the slides I presented as per the Jeff requirement, after laying out the context of the conference on one slide, there was one slide that was all that mattered. Restating my conference lesson, I put on the slide, C++ is a programming language, not a religion. Certainly obvious, but not to anyone on the leading edge of technology who believed that C++ required a new way to think about programming. 
I went on to say that the lessons I took away from the conference were that C++ was a better C, not a new way to do everything. The most effective way to use C++ was to stick to a sane subset of the language, which was basically heresy to all the people advocating for adding new features and complexity to the language and using them all. While the languages team was required to implement the public standards, which were being developed at the time and were active, and we were active members of the ANSI committee, there was no reason for our own class library to serve as a compiler test suite. This philosophy of C++ minimalism was the first step in building our class library. The second was the impetus of Scott and Rick Powell. Both had built many layers to insulate people from variations in different operating systems and platforms, and both knew the cost in memory size and code complexity that comes with that. While it always seemed like a good idea at the time, eventually the team building the layer found itself having to do as much work as each of the operating systems. That meant a small effort turned out to require two or three times the effort of some of the largest teams, which were effectively competition. Given the realignment of Mike Maps app division around Windows versus being everything to everyone, along with our newly minted religion around C++ minimalism versus upaholism, we had a strategy. We would build tools for Windows, running on Windows, and a class library that was dedicated to building Windows apps, not an academic exercise in OOP. During a doorway conversation with Jeff, we discussed how we would ship. We were trying to find a way to break down the problem to give the team time to build our next step competitor. Jeff asked if there was a way to ship part of the class library with the forthcoming C++ compiler and then ship the rest with an update that included new GUI tools. In hindsight, I think Jeff knew the answer. Yes, we could. Still, I gave him that, and our ideas for a minimal class library could easily be partitioned into parts applicable to Windows and parts that were more in line with the focus on the first C++ release that was all about character mode. We sketched out what was known as the class hierarchy, based on what we called foundation classes and then Windows classes. These foundation classes would be the minimal product we could ship in time for the developer conference and would simply give a bit of a flavor of how the class library would follow. They weren't even all that helpful for writing Windows programs, yet. Jeff asked if I would lead the near-term project, the first release of AFX that was aligned with C++ 7.0, as it was called. I had no idea what lead meant, except that it was being asked to ship, and that was exciting. I still report to Scott, but Jeff promoted me to manager. One day I was not a manager, then I was, was a manager. At first, I thought, wow, everything is going to be different. Except at Microsoft in those days, especially working for Jeff, that wasn't the case. Jeff's idea of a manager was to take people who were so productive that they could do precisely the work required, but also have enough extra time to manage. The management part was an add-on. There was no such thing as a manager who didn't code. Scott was a full-time developer, so was Garth. Everyone was writing code. Managers just did some extra stuff for half a day a week or so. My first direct reports were Rick Powell and Eric Schlegel, email Eric SC. Eric recently graduated from Dartmouth and knew everything there was to be known about Macintosh. Rick, a pioneering engineer on the Excel team who created much of the layer code that helped Excel work across Windows and Mac, was a legend. While we became great hallway friends, the idea of me managing Rick was absurd. I literally had nothing to offer him. Rick wasn't looking for anything, though, and it ended up being a great chance for us to officially hang out. He knew the work that needed to be done and wanted to do it. He was better at it than anyone else. 
Eric was going to work on some Mac-specific tooling as part of a broader project that re remained in place. We defined a project and built a schedule. Next, we needed to ship. We needed to create a source code project, an SLM, or Source Library Manager project. In a symbolic gesture of ridding ourselves of the past evils of upaholism, we created the new AFX source code project, deleted the old project, and for good measure, I deleted the last copy of the code. RM minus RF AFX. That was, wasn't quite the command for the source code control system, but became how we symbolically told the story of becoming recovered upaholics by using the well-known Unix terminology to delete files. I deleted all the files of our failed project, which we started to refer to as old AFX. We had a clean slate. But the first things first. We needed a t-shirt. Without a t-shirt, there was no way to start a project. And frankly, that explained a lot about the previous years. Getting a shirt in those days was no easy task. First, it had to be only one color because silk screening multiple colors was prohibitively expensive. Second, a big deposit was required, as was a minimum commitment for a certain quantity. There was a place down by the Kingdom in industrial Seattle where we went to check out proofs. It was a crazy process. I needed a design. The lesson that came out of the Bill G review for us was that we had not been in tune to the market, while at the same time we were sloppy. At the time, my uncle, a banker, was working at Prudential, which had the slogan, Rock Solid Market Wise. I called him up and asked him to send me some letterhead or a poster or something. There was no internet. I received a big FedEx tube the next day. Wow, exciting. Filled with all sorts of slogan items and a poster. At the Microsoft Library, I made a scan of the logo using the public scanner. Using Windows Paint, I added Microsoft Foundation classes across the top of the Rock of Gibraltar, along with the trademark Prudential tagline, Rock Solid, Market Wise. Then our group's administrative assistant, Kathleen Thompson, or Kath T email, who later contributed thousands of pages of documentation as a writer, guided me through the process of getting a t-shirt made. There was one problem. I did the classic Microsoft thing of acting first and not asking permission. Thinking about the minibar incident, I chose to pay for the shirts myself and hoped to work it out later. I wrote a check for $450. Two weeks later, we had shirts. And apparently, we also named our first product Microsoft Foundation Classes, or MFC, which I came up with for just the shirts, and it stuck. We were building MFC 1.0. I proudly gave Jeff a shirt when they arrived. His first comment was not, did you get permission for the logo, but rather, who paid for these? My answer was, I did. And before I managed to ask for reimbursement, he smiled and mouthed, good answer. It was a different era. People thought of company money differently, as if Microsoft was still a startup, and as crazy as it was to pay for t-shirts, I understood Jeff's point as we started to see the spending all around the company start to increase. A few weeks later, a reimbursement check, an actual physical check, arrived. Jeff worked the amount out with Kathleen. Coding the project was a whirlwind through the next few months. The languages team worked under a deadline that wasn't realistic, but we were only a small deliverable to their big project and were not in a position to play schedule chicken, a common description used when two groups shared unrealistic schedule deadlines. Surprisingly, decision-making clarity came from having a clear point of view, a tight deadline, and constraints. This idea of clear point of view was something Jeff instilled in me during one of our many conversations. He would use the expression to highlight a unique perspective or belief that defines a product or guiding light. It was new to me, though years later I understood why it was referred to as North Star. 
Well, this was all happening to me. It was also changing me. While I was on a job for almost two years, I had not really transitioned from graduate school to industry. And then I did, and it happened fast. Big and small things were happening to the product quickly, too, seemingly all at the same time. We had to choose naming conventions for objects in our source code, what the code looked like in books, and what happened when thousands of programmers typed each day. This was essentially a life-or-death struggle, and picking ROG could be legitimately alienating of other developers. Microsoft Apps championed a specific and rigorous naming convention called Hungarian, which we learned in ADC. It was pioneered by Charles Simone and was his Stanford PhD dissertation. Windows took Hungarian and basically broke it in ways that made apps people cringe. MFC was both a new language with many new idioms, straddling the world between apps and systems. But time, pressure, and clarity of mission made it simple. And we picked a few conventions that came to define C++ for an entire generation of programmers. Classes start with a C, as in C string. Member variables start with an M underscore. And everything starts with our main class, C object, which was a super lean, low memory object. That was the whole hoopaholic philosophy swung 180 degrees from conventional wisdom of the time. Also, when it came to tabs versus spaces, we chose correctly. What previously took weeks, we dispensed with in a day. Scott and I worked on diagrams for the class hierarchy, sort of a family tree of the product. We drew them in PowerPoint, which only had basic shapes back then and didn't even have good alignment tools. And then at night, I took them to the all-night Kinko's Copy Center on Capitol Hill, where they could make copies the size of posters. Class hierarchy posters were the currency of the C++ world, and we had the best. Sticking with the Rick P. philosophy of not duplicating code from Windows, we made a lot of choices that went against what people hoping for cross-platform code would have liked. We used existing Windows OS implementations for most everything in MFC 1.0, including files, strings, and more. If the intention was running this code on another OS, then it meant basically implementing those parts of Windows. It wasn't about being sneaky. It was about being efficient for people writing Windows programs, which we felt was there where the world was heading. It was our strategy to make Windows programs easier and efficient. We decided for, cre for credibility with developers that we would ship our library source code. Microsoft never shipped source code and guarded it closely. In this case, though, Jeff thought it was important and supported us. This meant, however, that we needed to make our code pretty and free of the kinds of things that routinely peppered code of Microsoft products. Comments like bug or don't touch this code or the ever-present bug, bug, bug. As part of this, we also choose, chose to use the AFX prefix in the code as well, which ended up being the source of many rumors trying to discern its absolute meaning. In the online version, there's a, a image of the recruiting brochure for the era for college campuses, and the front of it is a photo of Mount Rainier with the original MFC 1.0 source code sort of imaged over the mountain. And that was done by Chris Wittress, my recruiter, and used for the college recruiters that year. Finally, we were absolute zealots about performance and memory usage. We were running on 16-bit computers with Windows 3.0, and memory was very tight. Rick taught me a bunch of ways to measure and report on memory usage that I not only implemented, but reported out every single day. Every night, late, I mailed out the changes to the project in lines of code, size of compiled code in bytes, and size of the most trivial program, Hello World. Displaying Hello World on the screen was a technique pioneered by the creators of the C programming language. 
It allowed programmers to compare programming languages, which they love to do, by looking at the simplest program. If something went in the wrong direction, we were required to explain it every single day. While this was going on, we were helping the compiler team to ship. There was a massive amount of work to build a C++ compiler, and we were one of the only products under development using C++. Since we still needed to compete with Steve Jobs, our team was simultaneously working on an even bigger project. Version 1.0 of the foundation classes were a fraction of the scope of what we needed to get done.